And so, hey, today, I'm glad to be here today. It's exciting to be here. We are continuing in our series, uh, The End Game, as we've been looking at Matthew 24 and 25. And so, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning. But as we look at the passage today, I want to back up a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about where we've been because context is king for us today. And so in Matthew chapter 24, as we began this series, The End Game, what we see is that Jesus is teaching the disciples about things that are going to happen at the end time, right? He's talking about all these things that are coming down the pike. Now, last week, Pastor Mercer talked a little bit about how uh, the kind of a timeline that we'd be familiar with, and that, you know, as you look at Thessalonians, you look at the book of Revelation, as you look at the book of Daniel and the Gospels, there's a timeline that makes the most amount of sense, and that is that there's a rapture that happens to the church, and then there's a seven-year tribulation, and then there's the second coming of Christ, which launches us into a millennial reign of Christ. And some of you are like, man, that's a lot of information there. Well, he talked about it last week just a little bit. But the thing I want you to notice about it is this, is that Jesus is specifically teaching the disciples on that seven-year period between the rapture of the church and between the second coming of Christ. Now, in this passage of Scripture, Matthew 24, verse 1 through 14, Jesus gives like six signs that we know that we're moving toward the end. He talks about things like persecution, apostasy, where people turn from the faith. He talks about things like uh, deception and disputes, wars, rumors of wars. And then he said there's a moment right in the middle of that tribulation period It's called the abomination of desolation, which Pastor talked about last week. It's a moment when the Antichrist will rise up and he will declare that he is the Messiah and he will make everyone and position everyone to begin to worship him. And that event, the abomination of desolation, the rise of the Antichrist, that he is God and claiming that he is God, that will be an event that will trigger the last three and a half years, which the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. Now, I want to tell you about the Great Tribulation. This is a time like we've never seen before. This is a season, these last three and a half years, for those that are, that are, that are not raptured with the church but come to faith during the seven-year tribulation, when this event happens, this, this abomination of desolation, the rise of the Antichrist, all of a sudden things get much worse than the world has ever seen before. In fact, Jesus said this. He told them, said, listen, if you're, if you're a believer, I want you, when that moment happens, I want you to flee to the mountains. Why? Because in that moment, listen, in that moment, God's going to begin to pour out his wrath on this world like this world has never seen before. And in fact, he goes on to say, hey, listen, if you're up on the rooftop, don't go down and get your coat. And it's even funny, he's like, he's like, and pity for those who are pregnant or nursing, and if it's a winter or the Sabbath. In other words, pity for those who are going to be slowed down, because when this event happens, God is going to pour out his wrath on this world like we have never seen before. And not only are we going to see a great deal of calamity, we're also going to see confusion like we've never seen before. And we're going to see corruption like we've never seen before. In fact, at the very end of chapter 24, what we see is that he refers to the world during this great tribulation as a dead carcass. Have you ever seen a deer on the side of the road that had been hit and nobody took the time to get it off the road and you passed it every day going to work or every day going home and eventually it decays and it's rotten and there's just a carcass that's left? He said, that's what the world's going to look like. Now, is anybody encouraged so far this morning? Right? But here's what I love. Jesus, as says, at the end of this great tribulation, 
the Son of Man's going to come again. He's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming as a righteous judge, amen? But he's coming in. Now, here's what I love about chapter 24. We'll get to 25 in a minute. But what I love about chapter 24 is this, is that after Jesus lays this bomb on his disciples about all these things are going to happen, not even in their lifetime, not maybe even necessarily in our lifetime, but are going to happen that seven years before his return, he, he, he kind of he does something that's interesting here. He lets them know that, hey, get, listen, well, all this stuff, it's easy to get bogged down in all these events. It's easy to get bogged down in all this stuff that's happening. What I want you to know is this, is that history is moving somewhere. And as you see these events happen, and as you see things take place, just be reminded that history is going somewhere. And you know where history is going? It's going to the point where Jesus is going to split the clouds, and with the voice of an archangel and a trumpet sound, he is coming again. History is moving somewhere. And he wanted them to know that, that even when you're caught up in the middle of persecution, history is taking us somewhere. We are moving somewhere. And for those people that would read this in that last seven-year period, this tribulation period, this will provide a great deal of hope for them. Everybody say hope. That's what this provided. Now, even for us, guess what? You know what we're waiting for? We're waiting for the rapture of the church, aren't we? We're waiting for our king to come and snatch us so that we can go and be with him. And that one day when he does return after that seven years, that we can reign and we can rule on this earth with him. We are waiting for that moment. But let's just be honest. Can we say the world we live in is filled with ungodliness? Amen? Can we say the world we live in is filled with wickedness and apostasy and disasters? Yes, it's everywhere. But the more we see the wickedness of the world, and listen, I, I mean, I, I, I scan Facebook only to see what crazy Christians want to talk about, right? Because ever, some people just live their life on Facebook, and they've got an opinion about everything. And I just love to laugh, and so I'm just scrolling through there. I rarely post anything except my wife's birthday yesterday, and that was kind of a big post, so, so I had to make sure I did that. But I just scroll Facebook because when you look at the world, there are Christians are like talking about the wickedness in the world we live in. And I want to say, what did you expect? We live in a fallen and a broken world. It's not going to get better till he comes again. It's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse. And we must be reminded that even though we see wickedness in the world, it's all leading somewhere. It's taking us somewhere. And at the very end of this conversation, Jesus has with the disciples, at the very end of this talk about the events that are coming, he does something fascinating. He talks about how they're to live in the meantime. So if all these events are coming down the pike and all these events are pushing us to the, to the rapture for us and to the second coming for those that are living this time, if all that stuff's happening, how are you going to live in the meantime? What about the now? Do any of you remember in 1989 when they said the world was going to end? you remember that? And people were like selling stuff? And like going out to the desert and I guess just laying there hoping the rapture was going to happen. What a level of disappointment that must have been the next day, right? You have nothing and you're sunburned. I mean, that would have been a terrible <laughs> moment, right? Terrible. But at the very end of this, here's what he says in chapter 24. Here's how you live in the meantime. Be ready. Be alert. Be on watch. And then he ends with what I just said, be ready. 
Now, it's obviously that being ready was a big part of what Jesus wanted to teach on. Because after he talked about being on watch and being alert, he ended with being ready. And then he gives us two parables. And these parables perfectly lay out what it means for us to be ready. The first parable he used, and we'll get, we won't talk about this one today because Pastor highlighted last week, was the parable of the ten virgins. You had ten virgins that were waiting for a groom to show up. And he was delayed. He took a while. And all ten thought they were prepared. All ten thought they were ready. And the truth be told, only five were ready, right? Only five when the groom showed up were ready to go and got to enter into the wedding. The other five thought they were ready, but they weren't ready. And when they showed up, it was what? Too late. See, when we read that parable, here's what we learn about being ready. Being ready means that we must be prepared to meet him. That's what it's about. And I just want to say this to you, because we're going to come back to this at the end of today. Are you prepared? If the physical Lord Jesus came right now, are you prepared to meet him? Well, Doug, what do you mean prepared? What I mean is, has your heart changed? Have you surrendered your life to him? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of the Most High God? Are you prepared? Being ready means being prepared. And quite honestly, some of you today may say, I don't know. I think I am, but I don't know. Before today's over, you're going to have a chance to know for sure. And the second parable he talks about is the parable, and where we're going to spend our time today, is the parable of the talents. And what we learn in the parable of talents is this, is that being ready means being found faithful when Jesus returns. Being ready means being not only prepared, but being found faithful when Jesus returns. How about you? I don't know about you, but for me, when Jesus comes to take his church, how do you want to be found? Kick back, eating popcorn, watching your football game, chilling out, doing nothing? Or do you want to find him coming back and finding you about his father's work? How do you want to be found when he comes back? So today the question I want us to wrestle is what must we do to be found faithful in the meantime, what must we do to be found faithful when Jesus comes again? So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 25, I know you thought I would never get there. Matthew chapter 25, the first thing we see is in verse 14 and 15. Here it is. For it will be like a man going on a journey, he called his servants, and he entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went Oh, wait, now I want you to notice something real fast. Here's a master who's about to go on a long journey. He's going away. And he leaves responsibility to servants. In fact, the master entrusts three servants or three slaves with his possessions. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to the last one he gave one talent. Now, many of you may be going, okay, what is a talent? Well, talent is not a, a, a type of currency. A talent is a measurement of weight. And so we don't really know how much he gave each one because if he gave a talent of copper or a talent of gold or a talent of silver, that would be a different, uh, that would be a different value of each one. But here's the point that he gave five, two, and one is that to one person, he gave great responsibility to another person, he gave some responsibility. And to the last person, he gave a little responsibility. Now, the interesting thing as we continue to read this parable is going to be this. 
as that this master has an assumed expectation. He has an assumed expectation of what the servants should do with what he's entrusted them with. He assumes and expects his servants to do a couple things. I want you to write this down. I know when you opened your worship folder today, you thought, great, this is going to be a pointless sermon today, right? But it's not. It's not. And the thing about it is this. He assumed a couple things. First of all, he assumed they would steward the resources that he'd given them. That they would make wise decisions with the resources that he had given them. But most importantly, he assumed that they would invest the resources that he had given them. That they would steward it, not squander it. That they would invest it, not hoard it. And by investing it, it would yield a return. Now, who gets the return? Not the servants, but who? The master, right? And so to these three people, he gives these different talents, and he has this expectation that you're going to go and you're going to steward what I've given you, and you're going to invest what I've given you, and you're not going to squander it, you're not going to hoard it, but you're going to use it to yield a return. Now, as we look at this story in context, one of the reasons I went back and grabbed the rest of 24 is because of this. In context, it's not hard to understand the imagery that Jesus is using. Who's the man going on a journey in the story? It's Jesus, right? He's going to foreshadow his death, and he's going away. But yet we know he's coming again. So there's a foreshadowing here that Jesus is the man who's going on a journey that eventually is going to return. So who are the slaves? It's us. In fact, a better way to say it is it's all humanity. Humanity is the one. Now, you think, okay, Doug, well, if there's only three people in the story. Well, listen, it's a reflection of all humanity. Because what is the greatest possession that Jesus left this world? What is the greatest thing that Jesus left this world and entrusted this world with? What is the greatest thing? The gospel. Amen? The greatest thing that Jesus entrusted into the world. When he left, when he ascended and the Holy Spirit came, the greatest possession that Jesus left this world was the good news of his salvation. Left them the gospel Message. And you may say, Doug, well, what do you mean by the gospel? Well, here's what I mean it means an understanding that I am wretched, that I'm sinful, that I, by my sin, by choice, and by nature, have separated myself from God. I am separate from Him. And there's nothing I can do, nothing I can say, no act I can perform that makes me good enough to be in right standing with Him. But in the midst of my depravity, in the midst of my sinfulness, in the midst of my rebellion, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son. And that God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. So while I'm wretched and can do nothing to earn favor with God, Jesus came and took my place. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when I put my faith in him and I surrender my life to him, I have been forgiven of my sins and now I have the hope of heaven and eternal life. Amen? That's the gospel. What, listen, what greater truth could Jesus have left than the gospel? I mean, can you think of any other message that can change the eternity of anybody? There is no other message. Jesus said, I am what? The way the truth, and the life. No one, what does no one mean? This is a good Greek word, you ready? You know what no one means? No one, right? You're so smart this morning, right? 
It means no one. No one, nothing, nobody. No one came to the Father but through me. See, the thing that Jesus left that was most important was the gospel. Now, here's why I say that. For those of us that are believers in the room, there's also that same expectation on us. Just like the master expected those servants to steward and invest the resources he left them, do you think Jesus expects us to steward and invest the gospel that he's left us? What do you think? Do you think so? So when we ask the question, what must we do to be found faithful when he returns? Here it is, write it down. Live urgently. Live urgently. I don't know about you, but I find it in the world we live in, people are urgent about a lot of different things, aren't they? Like, do you remember when your first child was born and you took pictures? When my first son was born, it was back when we still had Polaroid cameras, right? Many of you remember those, right? Maybe probably all of you remember those, right? And I remember when we took a picture of James, I'm, I, I'm holding him, and they took a picture. I could not wait. In fact, I was a student pastor at the time, and I planned it beautifully. My wife was due on January the 5th. James was born on December 31st, eight minutes before midnight. I know what all the men in the room are thinking. Tax deduction, right? <laughs> it's exactly what I was thinking, too. But I had planned this strategically. We had a youth lock-in that night. And I'm in the hospital with 100 teenagers at the Boys and Girls Club with my intern running it. I mean, things are not going to go well, right? And so I, I remember getting that picture, and I, and I could not wait to leave the hospital to go show everyone my new son. There was an urgency about me. Even if you didn't want to talk to me about my son James, you were going to talk to me. I was going to stop you, and we were going to have a conversation about a guy, a little boy picture, who was a little bit blue, a little bit yucky, but was the most beautiful son ever born, right? We were going to have that conversation. People are urgent about a lot of things, about maybe the accolades their kids have in the sporting events. But my question is, how urgent are we about sharing the gospel? How urgent are we to take a message that can only help people move from death to life and from darkness to light? How urgently are we living and investing and stewarding the gospel message to those we come in contact with? Now listen to me. Please hear in my heart for a moment. You have a neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a coworker who's never trusted Christ. And how urgently are you going after them? Well, Doug, maybe somebody else will do it. No, maybe God has positioned you divinely to do it. And how, what are you doing with that? How urgently are you going after them? See, if we're going to be found faithful at his return, we, first of all, we must live urgently by stewarding and investing the gospel in the lives of people. Amen? Amen. Second thing is found in verse 16 through 18. It says this. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But the one who had received one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid it his master's money. Now I want you to, know, I want you to notice the reaction these different guys have. To the one he gave five talents and to the one he gave two talents, what do they do with it? They immediately stewarded it and they immediately invested it. These people, these two people were eager and urgent to serve the master. They were going to do all they could do to make the best use of what the master had resourced them with, right? And then you've got the person with the one talent. Were they eager at all? 
Were they urgent at all? What did they do? They dug a hole and hid it in the ground, right? They felt like it's better to put it in a hole. Now, not that it wasn't important because in that day, they didn't have banks. And so if you had something valuable, it was not uncommon to dig a hole in the ground and to bury it and come back to it later. But the point is, apparently they thought this thing was a value, but they weren't ready to deal with it right now. They would come back to it later. So two people took what they had and were urgent and eager to serve the master and to invest it. One person just dug a hole and buried it. And I was thinking as I was praying and preparing for today, I thought, okay, what does, what does the reaction teach us? What do we learn from their reaction to the talent? And here's what I think we learn, and I want you to write this down. Our urgency shows the depth of our love for the master. Now, I want to say that again. Our urgency shows the depth of our love for the master. See, the first two guys, the one with five and the one with two talents, ultimately show how much they love the master because he entrusted them with it and immediately says they left at once. Immediately they left and what did they do? They went and invested it. They went and traded it. They went and it doubled. They took what they were given and their love for the master was so much they did all they could do to double it so the master could have the return. But then the one guy with the talent did nothing with it. And so the first two guys show a deep love for the master, and the last guy, guess what he shows? No love for the master, right? Now, I want you to hear me this morning. Our urgency to share the gospel of Christ, our urgency to take the message of Jesus and take it to our neighbor and to take it to our family and to take it to our workplace and to take it to our kids, our urgency to share the gospel is a direct reflection of the depth of the love that we have For the master. Ouch. Right? See, what must we do to be found faithful when the Lord returns? First of all, live urgently. Second of all, love deeply. Love deeply. You know, I'm 46 years old. I've been a Christian for 37 years of my life. And here's what I know. The more I read this book... The more I pour my heart and soul into this, first of all, the more I realize how much I don't know. But the more I read this book, here's what I discover. Maybe you discover this too. I begin to discover at a higher level the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Right? One of my favorite passages is Isaiah 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on the throne. Right? And we talk about that, and that's wonderful. But the more I read this, I do see the majesty of Jesus. But you know, the more I read this, I also see the wretchedness of my own heart. I see the wickedness that rages within me. I see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of my life sometimes. The more I read this book, the truth be told is, the more I come to face to face with the beauty and majesty of Christ, but also the wickedness of my own heart. But when I read this book, knowing I see my own wickedness, I also see the grand grace of God. I see the story of grace. Do you know what? If there's a thread from the beginning and the end of this book, you know what it is? It's the redemption of God taking a broken and fallen world and redeeming them to themselves. And the more I read this book, the more I see his beauty, the more I see my wickedness, the more I embrace the grace that I have received. Right? And you know what it makes me do? It makes me love him more deeply. How about you?
When you come to church and we sing, man, wasn't that wonderful a while ago? When we sing, there's something about that name. Are you reminded of the majesty of Jesus? And we sing of his majesty like Isaiah. Are you reminded that you're a person with unclean lips and you live around people with unclean lips? But yet at the end of the song, you're reminded of the grace that we have received. I mean, is there a point in your life where you truly have understood who he is and what he's about and his beauty and our wickedness, but be thankful for the grace that you received? Have you had that moment? Because here's what I know if you have. You will find yourself falling deeper and deeper and deeper in love with him. Amen? And the more I love him, guess what? The more I love people. And you know that's important? You know why? Because people are messy, right? Aren't people messy, amen? See, if you didn't say amen, you're the messy person we're talking about. Amen. Right? We're messy. We're complicated. But here's what I know. The more I fall in love with him, the more I love people. And guess what? The more urgent I live my life. So how are we to be found faithful? What must we do to be found faithful when he returns? Live urgently, love deeply. And the third one is found in the rest of the passage. Look at me in verse 19. It says this in verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled the accounts with him. In other words, the master came back and now it's time, school's back in session. And now it's time to give an account what you, with what you did with what I entrusted you with. Look what happens in verse 21 and 20 and 21. And he who had received five talents came forward and received the five talents, came forward and bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You get the imagery there? You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, the first guy with five talents bore evidence that he truly was a faithful servant, right? He took what was entrusted to him, and he stewarded it, and he invested it, and he multiplied it and reaped a return, and then he turned and gave it to who? The master, the very person he was living for, the very person he had a deep love for. He went out and he did this for them, and then he returned it and gave it back to the master, this guy bore evidence that he was a truly faithful servant. And consequently, he was commended and what else? Rewarded. Good job, my good and faithful what? Servant. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Right? So the first guy bore evidence of being a true faithful. Look at the second guy here, verse 22 through 23. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master... You delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Here's another guy who truly bore evidence of being a true follower and a true servant and faithful servant to the master. And consequently, like the guy with five talents, he was rewarded. He was commended and he was rewarded. So you've got two people who took what was entrusted to them. They went and invested it. Why? Because the deep love they had for the master. And when the master returned, it had multiplied and they gave it all back to the master. And then the master, he commends them and he rewards them. And then we have the guy with the one talent, right? Look with me in verse 24 and 25 says this, he also who had received the one talent came forward, 
saying, Master, now I want you to listen to this. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now, you think about it. Here's a guy. The other two bore evidence of being a true, faithful servant. Did this guy bear that same evidence? Come on, did this guy bear the same evidence? No. You know what this guy, this guy bore evidence, but he bore evidence that he was a pretender. Right? What did he do with the talent he received? Nothing. He dug a hole and buried it. In fact, if you look at the story, not only did he do nothing with it, but guess what? He also attacked the character of the master, right? He said, I know you to be a what? Hard man. You reap where you do not sow. You gather where you plant no seed. In other words, hey, listen, when I look at you, master, here's what I see. Someone who's unjust, someone who's unmerciful, and someone who's uncaring. That's what I see in you, master. In other words, the response this guy gives to his master, his assessment of the master, it does not show a presence of a relationship with the master. It shows a lack of relationship with the master. Amen? The first two took what was entrusted and invested it. Why? Because they loved him. And they received commendation and reward. The last guy took what he had and buried a hole because while it may be important, maybe I'll get back to it later in life. And the master shows up and he didn't know it. And rather than talking to the master and begging for forgiveness to the master, he attacks the master and he says, listen, when I look at you, I see someone who's unmerciful, unjust, and uncaring. Everything this guy says is a reflection and assessment shows the lack of relationship he had with the master. Now, consequently, do you think he received accommodation reward? No. Look what happens next in verse 26 through 30. <clears throat> but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers and that my coming I should have received that which was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will, more be given. And he who has an abundance, but from the one who has not, even he has will be taken away. Everything it has taken away. And cast the worthless servant. Now, are those terms of endearment real quickly? Are those in terms of endearment? Is that how you talk to your kids? Come on, is that how you, you, you worthless child of mine, right? Nobody talks that way. Especially if there's a relationship, right? You may be upset with your kids, but do you talk to your spouse that way? Nobody answers like, nope, I'm not saying anything, right? Well, you don't, why? Because there's love there. There is no love relationship this person has with the master. And so he says, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This person was not commended and rewarded they were to be condemned and what? Punished. I find it interesting, Jesus' assessment of this person. At the end of this person's life, when they had to give an account for what they had dealt with and what they had been entrusted with, Jesus basically says, listen, you have lived a life where your heart has been empty and your life has been worthless. Right? Your heart has been empty and your life has been worthless. 
Can I just say to all of us in the room today, the same thing is true of those who leave this world and do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Those who leave this world or when he comes again, who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, no matter how they live life, at the end of the day, they had a heart that was empty and a life that was worthless. You know why I can say that? Because what brings worth to our lives? The fact that I'm in relationship with him. Right, The value of my life is not in my job, it's not in my marriage, it's not in my accolades. The value of my life comes in the fact that I have been redeemed, adopted, and I'm a child of the Most High God. And that's your story too. So he says, listen, you have a heart that's empty and worthless. And you say, well, Doug, well, what does that mean? Well, here it is. What must we do to be found faithful when he returns? Yes, we must live urgently. Yes, we must love deeply, but third and last... We must check our hearts. Check your heart. Here's what I mean. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? See, when he comes again at the second coming, there are no more chances. When we slip away from this life and step into eternity, there are no more chances. The Bible said it's appointed once for a man to die and then what? Then the judgment. There's not one of these moments of going, oops, We have to make our decision for Christ on this side of eternity. And do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you have a relationship with him? And I'm not asking you, do you know the church jargon? You may say, well, Doug, well, I teach Sunday school or small groups. Doug, I'm a leader in the church. Doug, I don't give a tenth. I give 12% to the church. I'm not asking you any of that. I'm asking you one day when you stand before a holy God, Will he say, good job, my good and faithful servant? Or will he say, cast away from me forever, for I never knew you? To me, that's the most eerie passage in all the Bible, Matthew chapter 7. When those that come to Jesus say, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do miracles in your name? And he looks at them and says, cast away from me forever, because we had no relationship. You knew about me but you didn't know me. And so I'm asking us, check your heart. You know, as we think about it today, as we close, I wanna say this, that one day Jesus is coming, we all know that. It's gonna be a glorious moment. But how will he find us? Will he find us like the pretender who knows the church jargon, who knows the right stuff to say, but at the end of the day has no relationship with him? Or will he find us faithful? Will he find us living a life urgent and eager to share this gospel to those around us. And so I have three challenges for us this morning as we close. The first one is this, everybody right now in this moment, would you just check your heart? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you died this moment, you'd spend eternity with him? If not, in a moment, you're gonna have that chance. Second thing is this, if you're a believer in the room, I'm gonna ask you, how deeply do you love your father? How deeply do you love Jesus? We talk about loving Jesus all the time right here, don't we? Don't we? Amen? We talk about it all the time. We talk about knowing and and loving and trusting and following Jesus. I mean, that's kind of what drives us around here. But how much do you love him? And if you love him deeply, do you find yourself loving other people as well? And then third of all, are you living urgently? Well, Doug, all my neighbors are Christians. Really? Are you sure about that? Well, they have a cross somewhere on the outside of their house. So, here's my point. How urgent are we?
Like, I would love to think today that when you leave, and maybe even if you've been to small groups, maybe you're about to head to small groups, but when you leave as you go to lunch, that you would have eyes of Jesus, that you would go out and see that I live in a broken and a lost world, and it doesn't matter what my age is, I need to be urgent and living and sharing and investing the gospel into everyone because everybody every, one day is all going to stand before a king, right? Everybody that's ever lived is going to stand before him. And I want to do all I can because I love him so dearly to share that gospel with everybody that I come in contact with. So how urgently are you living for him? And if you were to be honest enough today to say this, hey, Doug, not very. I'm not being very urgent. Here's what I'd ask you to do. You ready? It's a good church word. You ready? A good biblical word. You ready? Repent. Say, Lord, I'm tired of living a life of apathy. I'm tired of living a life for self, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to start living a life of urgency. I'm going to take the gospel you've entrusted me with, and I'm going to make sure my kids know about it. I'm going to make sure my family knows about it. I'm going to make sure my coworkers know about it. I'm going to make sure my neighbors know about it. I'm going to make sure when somebody rubs up against me, what they sense and feel and hear about is the person, the work of Jesus. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.